0: Amy is going to read our text this morning. Yep,
1: just three. John 4, 3 through 26. He left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Syker, Syker, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have had no no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, And he would have given you living water.
0: Thank you, Amy. No, it's good.
2: Good brotherly affection
0: over there. One of the greatest things about being part of a faith that is 2,000 years old is that you never have to interpret the Bible alone. We have centuries of scholars and preachers and priests and writers to look back on and and to get their take, because biblical interpretation was never meant to be a solo sport for you Lone Rangers out there. One of the unfortunate things about being part of an old faith tradition is that sometimes somebody gets the text wrong, and then for centuries, people keep perpetuating that particular error without ever realizing it. For example, I've talked about this one before. I think Mary Magdalene is its a really unfortunate example because one of the early popes um, identified the woman who washed Jesus' feet as Mary Magdalene. And there was zero evidence that he was correct. In fact, the, he, there were two accounts of that happening. One was with Mary of Bethany, who's a completely different Mary, The other was an unnamed sinful woman, uh, a term which seemed to hint at her having a a history of, of sexual sin. So it seemed that what happened is this pope combined those two incidents into one and then named the wrong Mary. Now, the problem, the sad thing about that is that for centuries people have followed his lead and Mary Magdalene has in books and in sermons and in really, really bad movies has been considered a prostitute even though there isn't any indication of that in the text, which simply says she was demonized. It's a real shame, isn't it? This kind of thing can happen. And and this morning, I think we have a similar situation with the woman at the well. And I'm going to make a statement here. Uh, (laughs) Most of what you know about the women on the well is probably not true. Okay, we'll come back to that in a few minutes. Do you like that? OK. First, I want to talk about the Samaritans. I want to remind just who they are and why there is so much tension between the Jews and the Samaritans. It all started centuries before when the Assyrian Empire had conquered the northern kingdom of Israel. It's a little bit of a history lesson, but stay with me, okay? They had conquered the northern kingdom, they, and what they did is carried people off into all the corners of the empire, and then mixed them all up so that they would sort of lose their sense of identity and their will to fight. That also happened then in that region. So what we have then is these people that stayed there, some of whom were, were people of Israel, and some who were Assyrians from all these different areas, and they intermixed. And uh, they, were, they were part Jewish, but then part Assyrian. They were like cousins to the Jews, and we call them the Samaritans. So fast forward a couple hundred years, long after Jerusalem had been destroyed and, and the people are returning to rebuild the temple. Uh, you had thousands of people returning for this huge job and this joyous thing. They all come back and they're excited to rebuild the temple under the leadership of this man named Zerubbabel. I know we have some babies on the way. Zerubbabel is a strong name for a boy or a girl. (laughs) Zerubbabel. When they get to Jerusalem, they're excited to start, and they get an offer of help. And that offer of help comes from their cousins, the Samaritans. Can we help you build the temple? Here's how Zerubbabel responded. No. That's it. He said, you have nothing in common with us in building a house to our God. Well, the text calls, them, this comes from the book of Ezra, it calls them enemies, but it doesn't say they were enemies before then. It says they were enemies then. Because then it goes back and forth. Then the, the, the Samaritans start hampering the work, and it goes back and forth, and tensions get inflamed, and from here on, they're enemies. It's really a sad uh, thing. And so the Samaritans say, well, you know, if we, if we can't have this temple, we will build our own temple. And they did. They built one in their own region at Mount Gerizim, which is 25-ish miles north of Jerusalem. And uh, they, they, they're like, we worship here, and our Jewish cousins worship down at the temple. We think they're wrong. They think we're wrong. So for centuries, then there's violence and bloodshed. And it's a really sad and ugly history. There's even a moment when Alexander the Great came in and started attacking the Samaritan cities and and some of the Judeans joined in on that. It was really sad. We we get a, a little snippet of of the mindset in the uh, it's called the Book of Sirach, which is not in our Protestant Bibles. It gives you a little glimpse into their mindset from the 50th chapter. It says this: The foolish people who live in Shechem, that's the Samaritans, are not even a people. So that hatred, you guys, ran really deep uh, all the way up until Jesus comes on the scene. And now, by now, the boundaries are well established: Samaritans and Jews. Do not mix. If you, were, uh, if you were a Jew and you wanted to travel from Galilee to Jerusalem or vice versa, you would go around the Samaritan territory, even though it's right in the middle, okay? Um, you would go around it. It was potentially dangerous to pass through. And if you didn't get hurt, you, you, know, you at least could get up in, in a very tense situation. But now in this story, here's Jesus, of course, a Jew, passing through, and he decides not to go around, but he goes through the Samaritan territory to the very foot of Mount Gerizim. That is the place where the Samaritans worshiped. And right here he comes to this well that was dug by Jacob himself. And the very first thing he does, you guys, is ask the Samaritan woman for help. He asks her for a drink of water. And Can we just pause and think about the poetry of Jesus here? You think this feud evidently began when they offered to help and Zerubbabel said no. And here's Jesus. The first thing he does is ask for help to get water. I just think that's beautiful. Like he's treating her with value and and like like they have something to offer. Like she has something to offer. We're going to, go back through this passage. We just read part of it, um, but we're going to keep going, and we're going to read it uh, in the message, because I think this is a familiar passage for a lot of us, but it's good to get a little different rhythm here. Um, he, uh, he asked her for a drink, and she responds uh, like this, like that. Yeah, you can read that in the deep Greek, and she says, dude, you know, and he says, she says, uh, we'll pick it up here, verse 9, chapter 4, How come you, a Jew, are asking me, a Samaritan woman, for a drink? In other words, don't you know the rules? Notice John puts in this parenthetical. He says, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. And in that, you can almost hear an echo of what Zerubbabel had said all those years ago, can't you? When he said, you have nothing in common with us. Jesus doesn't care about the rules, of course which is one of the reasons he's so awesome. He doesn't care. He responds saying, if you knew the generosity of God and who I am, you would be asking me for a drink and I would give you fresh living water. Okay then, living water, that's weird. The woman responds, I think with a bit of snark. She says, sir, you don't even have a bucket to draw with and the well is deep, Sir, so how are you gonna get this living water. Are you a better man than our ancestor Jacob, who dug this well and drank from it? You're, you know, he and his sons and livestock and passed it down. Your cool little water there, I don't know how you're even gonna do that. You think it's better than Jacob's, you know? And uh, so I do think she's being snarky, and she's clearly referencing Jacob, our ancestor. Remember, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are her ancestors. This is a shared heritage that they have here. Uh, the, uh, so she's, uh, she responds that way, and Jesus doesn't reply with snark. He actually kind of doubles down. Jesus says, everyone who drinks this water, Jacob's water, right, will get thirsty again. And whoever drinks the water I give will never thirst, not ever. The water I give will be an artesian spring within, gushing fountains of endless life. Clearly, he's not talking just about a different kind of water. He's talking about a different kind of thirst. A spiritual thirst that can't be quenched even by water from Jacob's well. We'll come back to that. So, of course, uh, uh, she she couldn't understand all of what he was saying here, take all this in. In fact, she sort of seems to to respond with snark again. She says, "Sir, give me this water, so I won't ever get thirsty, and I won't ever have to come back to this well again." (laughs) She might be being serious, but it sounds to me like, "Oh, that'd be great! I would never have to walk over here again. I hate this walk, you know." And then Jesus stops and says, "Go, go call your husband, and then come back." "I have no husband," she said. "That's nicely put. I have no husband." You have had five husbands, and the man you're living with now isn't even your husband. You spoke the truth there, sure enough. Whoa. This is where we need to pause and rethink some things. I'm going to be drawing a little bit here, not only from Tim Mackey, who we've been drawing from from, uh, this entire series, but also from uh, author Catherine McNeil, who uh, is a, a good friend of mine. And has done some wonderful devotional writing on this conversation. I want you to get this, okay? Get this. As modern readers of John, we hear Jesus' account of the woman's marital history and assume she is egregiously at fault. A serial adulteress, perhaps, or at the very least, unable to keep sacred vows. Perhaps even a prostitute, too unfit to be seen in public and collect water with the rest of the women early in the day. Many modern-day scholars look at the text and find this to be a fair conclusion, especially given the ambiguity of her current relationship. But when we look at Jesus' culture, the ancient laws, and the information that's in the text, another possibility emerges. So what is that possibility? She goes on to reference this fact, you guys, which, to me, turns the entire story on its head. And it's simply this. In this culture, women did not have the power to divorce. Only men had the power to initiate divorce. Now let that settle in on you for just a second. She did not have the legal authority to separate or divorce from any of these men. That changes a whole lot of things, doesn't it? In the ancient world, in this ancient society, like so many ancients, like almost every other ancient society in history, women did not have that many rights. They didn't have these kinds of rights, especially. However, a husband pretty much had carte blanche. If he decided he wanted to end the marriage for whatever reason, like if he wanted to trade his wife in for a younger model, he was free to do that, and a lot of them did which explains Jesus' attitude toward divorce, doesn't it? So, what we have here is a woman who was pushed out of the safety and provision of marriage by five separate men. So why was she cast off? What was wrong with her? We don't know why they cast her off. Maybe they said she was a difficult woman to be married to. Maybe she couldn't have children and they considered that some sort of curse. Maybe she, they thought she was too old. Maybe they thought she was too ugly. Could it have been sexual sin? Could she have been a serial adulterer? That's possible, but very unlikely. Here's what Dr. Lynn Coeck, who's the academic dean over at Northern Seminary, here's what, here's, here's what she says about the possibility. It's unlikely this woman was divorced five times each time for committing adultery. No man would dare marry a convicted adulteress. uh, that she was a serial divorcee is also unlikely. We have no evidence that anyone in the ancient world, man or woman, was divorced five times. So friends, whatever the stated reasons were that these men would have gotten rid of this woman, she was cast off five different times with no recourse. Can you imagine the devastation of that? There are a lot of stories with Jesus confronting sexual sin. This doesn't appear to be one of them. Now, I know you might say, okay, but wait, wait, what about the fact that she's currently living with a man who's not her husband? And, and I would say, yeah, that, that could mean that she's living in an immoral sexual relationship. Because as we did a whole series on before, Jesus has combined the, the act of sex, that sexual union between a husband and a wife. But I think it's just as likely that this wasn't the situation at all. If this woman had truly been cast off by five different men with no means of financial support or legal protection left to her, well, it's very, very possible that this was just a person who had given her a place to stay. In the ancient world, women had very few choices and they often had to rely on the mercy of the people in their community to keep on living. We don't know exactly the details of this. And I'm not suggesting that this woman was some sort of person uh, who's, you know, had no sin in her life. Obviously, that's not true. Everyone Jesus meets with, everybody he confronts has sin in their life, including us. All I'm saying is that there's nothing in this text that is painting her in the way that she has been painted throughout history. There's nothing in the text. It's just not there. I don't know why people assume that she has a salacious sexual history. That's been added, and that's been assumed. And it is an unsettling pattern when you think about it, that, like, that's just a thing we would assume with her, just like with Mary Magdalene. Like, why? Like, why why is it that we want to attach that to her? Why is it that that people have done that in the past? Uh, Why is it that that happens with, like, a woman like... Bathsheba, Like, the way that people tell the Bathsheba story, it's like she was doing a strip tease on the roof or something. Like, that's not the case. She was simply bathing. Everybody had to bathe, and that's where a lot of people bathe. But why is it that we want to push that? I, I don't think that's right, and I don't think that's right for this woman. So sometimes, my point is, sometimes if we're not careful, we can read things into the text, even when they're not there. And the fact is, The reason it annoys me this woman gets a bad name is she is an exemplary figure in this story. She is a woman who hears the words of Jesus and receives them with great joy and then starts preaching. Let's let's watch. Let's return to the text. Jesus tells her that he knows about the five husbands and he's aware of her current living situation. And she responds, I'm sure with a good bit of shock, she realizes this man has special powers, that he would know these things. So she says, oh, so you're a prophet. Well, tell me this. Our ancestors worshiped God at this mountain, but you Jews insist that Jerusalem is the only place for worship, right? You hear that racial tension, that rift? It's not even deep. It's right at the surface of everything. All the history is right there. She's acknowledging, okay, fine, you're a prophet, but you're also Jewish, and and you people have always shut our people out of the temple. Listen to Jesus' response here. Believe me, woman, the time is coming when you Samaritans will worship the Father, neither here at this mountain, nor there in Jerusalem. You worship guessing in the dark. We Jews worship in the clear light of day. God's way of salvation is made available through the Jews. Why? Because he's a Jew, right? But the time is coming. In fact, it has come when what you're called will not matter. And where you go to worship will not matter. It's who you are and the way you live that count before God. Your worship must engage your spirit in the pursuit of truth. That's the kind of people the Father is out looking for. Those who are simply and honestly themselves before Him in their worship. God is sheer being itself, spirit. Those who worship Him must do it out of their beings, their spirits, their true selves in adoration. Do you see what He's saying, guys? He's saying, I know your people have been shut out. But those days are now at an end and the time is coming, in fact the time is here because I'm here, that the temples and the mountains don't matter anymore, that bloodlines and race doesn't matter anymore, that racial history doesn't matter anymore, it doesn't matter if you've been cast out by other people or if you yourself have been cast off by five different men. God is looking for people who will worship him with their whole hearts. So forget the temple, ma'am. Forget the temple. Forget the rejection. I'm telling you, the water of life has come to you today. You're in. Hallelujah. The woman says, I, I don't know about that. I, I do know the Messiah is coming. When he arrives, we'll get the whole story. I think she's hinting the whole, I think she's like, and, and Jesus, he does this. he says, I am he. You don't have to wait any longer or look any further. She's so excited that she runs back home, and get this, she forgets her bucket. Isn't that awesome? I think, I I don't know if that's an intentional detail that John threw in there for us to follow, or if he's just describing the scene, but I'm telling you, there's something awesome about that. She left her bucket with Jesus. You see, Jesus is talking about different kind of water. He's talking about living water. Now, in order to let this whole point go a little deeper, I'm going to ask my friends from the Bible Project, Tim Mackey and John Collins, they're not really my friends, although they're basically Amber's best friends. (laughs) Whatever, I'm not jealous. To tell us a bit about this metaphor of living water. So we love these guys at the Bible Project. Highly, highly recommend their work free videos and deep stuff, and they talk about living water. So let's watch that, Joe.
3: If you go out into a desert, you'll see why it's one of the most deadly, uninhabitable
2: places on the planet. It's dry, and where there's no water, There's no life. This is the picture that we get on page two of Genesis. The story begins with a dry and desolate wilderness. But God provides a spring in the desert that becomes a source of life for plants and animals.
3: And that's where God brings together a man and a woman so
2: that humanity can flourish and spread the life of the garden. Exactly. And that garden spring becomes a river that flows out to water the entire world. And there can be enough for everyone. It's all a gift from God. And this is great,
3: humans in a lush garden, but as it turns out, they find a way to ruin it.
2: Right, despite all of this water that God's provided, it's like they still have a drought deep inside of them. This is an image of the human condition, how we're always thirsty for more. But more of what? Well, in this story, the humans want more wisdom to create more security and more control on their own terms. And tragically, it only leaves them more thirsty and suspicious of each other. And so they end up back in the wilderness. The humans have lost access to the water of life. And because of that, they can't spread God's life into the world. And so God needs to rescue them from the wilderness. Yeah, like in the story of Jacob. His selfish scheming ruined his family relationships, so he has to run from his problems out into the wilderness. But there, he finds a well and he meets a woman. This is like Eden, a man and a woman together by a source of water. Right. And then through Jacob, God creates the family of Israel. And he invites them to share in his own life so that they can be his partners in spreading that life to others. And sometimes they do this. But ultimately, they struggle with the same drought of the soul, thirsting for more power and more control. And it leads them down a path of violence and self-ruin and so they find themselves in a new wilderness captive to other nations. All this effort to quench our own thirst on our own terms its killing us. Yeah, the biblical prophet Ezekiel described Israel in exile as a pile of dry bones scattered in a desert valley. But, he said, one day God will pour out his own life presence, his spirit to water the land to create a new Eden And new kinds of humans. People who can spread God's life to others. Exactly. And so this brings us to the story of Jesus. Right. And there's a story about Jesus who goes to a well that Jacob used to own. And just like in Jacob's story, Jesus meets a woman. And he tells this woman that no matter how much water she drinks from this well, she'll always thirst for more. Then, he offers water that could quench your thirst forever. He's not talking about the well water. No. What he's talking about is God's own life that comes through him to us to satisfy our deepest thirsts. This is why later on, Jesus says, Let anyone who's thirsty come to me and drink. This is cool, but it's also a strange image. Drinking from a person? Totally. And it's connected to another strange image we find in the story of Jesus' death on the cross. A Roman soldier thrusts a spear in Jesus' side
3: and there's blood, but also all this water flows out.
2: Yes, it's an image showing how Jesus' death is a fountain of life. From him, God's own love that would die for his enemies flows down and out into the world. After Jesus was raised from the dead, we're told that he sends the
3: spirit into his followers.
2: Yes, to fill them up with God's own life. This is why the apostle Paul said that when we join the current of God's spirit, the fruit of Eden starts growing in us. Love and joy, patience and kindness, gentleness and self-control. People like that can create beautiful things in the world that bring life to others. Yes, like little streams of God's life that can come together and point forward To the beautiful scene that we find on the last page of the bible there's a new river of life yes it's flowing out from god and into a renewed creation bringing life to all wherever it goes
0: isn't that beautiful you see the implication you guys jesus is offering himself the river flows from him he is the living water And the stream came to Jacob's well that day to this woman. The stream came to the Samaritans. You guys, the stream came to the Samaritans who had been rejected. This group that had been ostracized, it came to them. It came to this woman who had been cast off so many times. It came to this whole village. This woman runs, and she tells them all, come see the man who knew all about the things I did, who knows me inside and out. Do you think this could be the Messiah? And the people do, in fact, think this could be the Messiah. If this woman was, was the social pariah even that she's been made out to be, I don't think people would have listened or embraced her words, but they absolutely did. Look what happened in verse 39. Many of the Samaritans from that village committed themselves to, to Jesus because of this woman's witness. He knew all about the things I did, she said. He knows me inside and out. They asked him to stay So Jesus stayed two days. A lot more people entrusted their lives to him when they heard what he had to say. They said to the woman, we're no longer taking this on your say so. We've heard it for ourselves and know for sure that it's true. He is the savior of the world. The gospel comes to the Samaritan people. So utterly beautiful. You know who are the first people to drink the living water? The ones who were thirsty. This woman, cast off by so many, she was thirsty. This community of people, marginalized and often hated, was thirsty. And this is one of the things John is showing us here, you guys. One of the things we see in the ministry of Jesus. I can't help but notice this. Jesus prioritizes the thirsty ones. He prioritizes those who have been shut out and cast off, sometimes for their own sin, yes, sometimes for no fault of their own. We live in a world not only of sin, but also of harsh injustice. And if we are Jesus' people, we need to not only be about forgiveness of sin, but we also need to be about justice and seeking to, to, to see the justice of God reach the marginalized. And I know, you guys, I know what that might sound like. I know that when we use words like justice in a place like this, our minds might want to jump to highly charged partisan political rhetoric. But this is one of the reasons I so loathe modern political rhetoric. I really do. Because it begins to dictate what we read and what we believe about Scripture itself. And, and I, I want to suggest to you, I think that's backwards. I don't think that political pundits who make their living from, from tribal outrage should ever get to dictate our theology. I think that's backwards. Instead, we're to let Jesus' words And Jesus' life transform us from the inside out. We let him shape our views and our attitudes about the world, about our neighbors, and about our role in society. We begin with him. To follow Jesus, friends, is to emulate Jesus. We copy him. (laughs) We see what he's doing, and we go, we got to do that. We emulate Jesus, and Jesus, throughout his ministry, prioritizes the downtrodden the widows and the orphans and the outcasts. Blessed are the poor in spirit, he says. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek, the merciful, and the persecuted. Friends, God is near to the brokenhearted. And Jesus here seeks justice for the marginalized. He just does. You know, in the New Testament, the word for righteousness is also the word for justice. They're interchangeable. I think sometimes we've latched on to the righteousness part, but we've let go of the justice. But we just referenced the Beatitudes here. Consider the words of Christ. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for justice. They shall be satisfied. Jesus brings water first to those who thirst. Maybe that's why Nicodemus didn't get it right away, you know, but this woman did. He was a little thirsty, She was parched. What about you? Are you thirsty for the living water? Are you thirsty for the presence of God? Are you thirsty for wholeness? Are you thirsty for life, goodness, justice? It doesn't matter, friends. It doesn't matter your past, who you are, where you've come from, how you've messed up, or how many times you've been cast off. The living water has come to you today. Jesus offers you, come, drink. And don't worry. If you haven't been mistreated like this woman has, you still get to drink. The stream has come to all of us. And as we drink as we let Jesus fill us again, remember, it's part of our call to lift up the marginalized in the way that Jesus did. To show patience and love and grace without resorting to judgment and hasty conclusions like so often happened with this woman. The living water has flowed to all of us. Are you thirsty? Maybe you're thirsty because you're broken hearted mourning or grieving you're poor in spirit friends i've got good news the living water has come and he will never leave you or forsake you so draw near this morning come close set your bucket down come and drink let's pray